week. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we want to read verses 2 to 13. Jordan did a, a few verses here. We're going to look at it more, uh, a, a larger passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 13. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. As always, if, if you do not have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. Uh, take the Bible that's there in the pew or let us know. We'll get you a nicer Bible. Uh, we can replace Bibles. That's no problem. I'll buy you a Bible. Main thing is to be in God's word. Starting in verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we gather that you would open our entire being, that we may believe in your word, apply your word, and be transformed by your word, which directs us to Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. Would you do that? And Lord, as we look at this important text, that we are freed from sin as we walk in the Spirit, we see that this is truly liberating. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You seated. Came across a headline uh, some time ago. The headline was, quote, Shock lingers after Nazi unit leader found in the U.S. Story begins in Minneapolis. The revelation that a former commander of a Nazi SS-led military unit has lived quietly in Minneapolis for the past six decades came as a shock to those who know the 94-year-old man. An Associated Press investigation found that he had served as a top commander in the Ukrainian Self-Defense Legion during World War II. The unit is accused of wartime atrocities, including the burning of villages filled with women and children. So what you have here is a man who has lived, presumably, in this small community for 60 years. And all of a sudden, one day, they wake up and realize they've been living next to a Nazi. A real Nazi, not the ones we make up uh, for, for the news. But a real Nazi there in Minneapolis. Now, the question I have for you is after six decades of all that he did in the war, after six decades, is the man still Guilty. Is he still guilty? It's a difficult question you may think on one end, but if you really think about it, the answer is yes. Think about it. If I were to break a law, let's say a speeding law or something like that, and, and uh, I stand before the judge, because apparently I was going really fast, but I stand before the judge, 
right? And, and, and uh, this happened years ago. And I stand before the judge and he says, are you guilty? And I may say, well, I did it then, but you need to know, judge, now, ever since then, I've been a really good person. I exercise regularly. I drive an electric vehicle. I, I, I only listen to K-Love radio. I am as good of a boy as you can get. You know what the judge is going to say? But are you guilty? All those other things don't really matter when it comes to condemnation. Are you guilty? All the good works, all the good deeds... All the niceties of the last several years doesn't matter because the question remains, are you guilty of this crime? Now, if that is true when it comes to a human judge, is it still not true when it comes to the divine one? Many of us are convinced that, that, well, sure, I've made mistakes. Sure, I've rebelled against my maker. However, I've been a really good boy. In fact, my good has outweighed my bad. Therefore, I should be able to stand before the judge and, uh, of, of the divine judge, the creator of the universe, and say, yeah, but I've been good. And he has one question. Are you guilty? Romans, it helps us to address that problem. Again, we, we did this last time, so I don't want to belabor the point. But, but in the opening chapters, he answers that, that though we are guilty and we are all guilty, in Christ is the forgiveness of our guilt and the cleansing of our shame because Christ has taken our guilt upon himself. Paul, however, by the time he comes into chapter 8, he's writing not as a sinner in need of a Savior, but as a saint still in need of a Savior. The temptation is to think, what I need is my fire insurance. I need to come to Jesus, get saved, move on the rest of my life. Paul has reminded us that even when we come to Christ, we still need Jesus. We still need the saving hope of the gospel, not for our salvation, but for our uh, uh, growing in salvation. And so what we have here is a continuation of what he said in verse 1. Remember what he said in verse 1. There is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Well, we got that. That was good. That's good news. And remember, he's writing to the believer. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Right now, there's no condemnation. But what does that look like? Well, the answer Paul gives is freedom. Freedom. Think about it. If, if you stood before a judge, you're on trial, you went through the whole thing, and at the end, at the end of the trial, my brother just got off jury duty. I'll share those stories at another time. And, and he, if, if, if the jury and the judge declares, you are not guilty, how foolish would it be to then turn around and say, well, I can't believe I did that. Everyone knows what a terrible person I am. No, you've been declared free. In fact, the judge will say, you are free to go. And if that is true of the human judge, how much more so from the divine judge? Believer, if you are in Christ, you are free. So let's start here, verses 2 to 8, with the freedom of gospel life. The freedom of gospel life. Now, the freedom of gospel life begins when we see that that it begins with grace. Gospel life begins with grace. Now, I understand what's going on here in verses 2 to 4. Paul mixes his metaphors a little bit. He, he, he contrasts law with grace, and he contrasts life with death. Okay, So he's going to mix these metaphors. So you have law and life. These are his, his metaphors. 
And the first thing he argues is that the law brings death. Look at it there in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see how he takes the law, and which, which the law exists to show you where you've broken it. You've heard me say before, if there was a button over here and above the button it said, do not push, we would all know who the sinners are because every single one of us is going to go push that button and see what happens. The reason it says do not push is because someone's been pushing the button and we don't want them to push the button. The law exists to expose sin, not to redeem us from sin, not to prevent us from sin. It is to say, because you all a bunch of sinners, we got to put a sign that says don't touch the red button. Right? And, and so he's saying here is that law brings with it death. Recall the last time you got pulled over by the police. How many of y'all, in fact, this morning got a little nervous that we had a little visitor across the street? I know some of y'all were. You were going to fishtail right into the church parking lot, weren't you? Like, like it's Fast and Furious or whatever movie it is. Right? I, I remember um, um, I got pulled over years ago, back when I was a sinner, and... and, and um, I was driving too fast. I, it was a 45. I was going 55 because I didn't know it was a 45. Uh, but that's my excuse. And I'm going to stick to it. And, and I got pulled over. But I remember that I came to a stoplight. I stopped everything. It was, it was late at night. We'd gone to the concert. And the police officer pulled up behind me. And I could tell it was a police officer. What did I do? Seatbelts on. Check. I don't think I was speeding. Check. Headlights on. Check. The missus seatbelt is on. Check. Right? Both hands on the wheel. Now I have them both on the rail. Check, right? Why? Because the, the, the presence of the police officer who represents the law has me really worked up. Now, he pulled me over anyways, and I remember asking my wife, my tail light out? Right? Because when we see the presence of the law, we know we've done something wrong. And, 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 and that's his point here. Whether it be man's law or religious law, the law threatens. That's why our heart rate goes up. So we start checking to see what it is we're doing wrong. The law can threaten. It will condemn. It can punish. But the law cannot redeem. It cannot redeem. This is why it brings death. Growing up in a small town, there was a man who had committed murder. I think he was, uh, 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 it was manslaughter, what I think he went to prison for. He went to prison for like 20 years or something. I don't know. And I remember saw him walking around. He was always alone. He was always walking by himself. And I asked my mother, this little boy, what's that man's story? And she says, oh, that man killed somebody. Now that I'm older, I realize he paid his debt to society. And yet everybody in town stayed away because that man killed somebody. That's all the law can do. It can only threaten, it can only condemn, it can only shame, it cannot redeem, which is why verses three to four, we see that though the law brings death, grace brings life. You see it there. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, it could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, who walk not according to the flesh, for that is what condemns us, but according to the spirit, which brings us life. You see, grace does not deny guilt, but it does what the law cannot do do. Christ takes upon himself our guilt, our shame upon his shoulders, thus redeeming us, though we may seem unredeemable. Grace restores the broken. The means of this grace is the finished work of the Son of God, and that is the work of grace in our lives. Right now, dear believer, 
Right now, the work of grace is going on in your life. You must choose to believe grace is working in your life, to live a life saying that though I am not perfect, though I am a sinner, though I may occasionally get pulled over by the police, come back from a concert, I am under his grace. And what he says I am, I am that thing. This is why Paul is so critical of rule keeping. Law condemns, it destroys, it kills. But when we choose grace, we're choosing life because we are choosing our living Savior. But notice not only does the gospel life bring, uh, begin with grace, we need to see in verses 5 to 8, gospel life reorientates our focus. Few things are more debilitating in this life than worry, anxiety, doubt, lies, fears. Add to that the burden of shame and guilt. Chances are you have lost a lot of sleep over the years because of unnecessary worry. Chances are that, that, that at times anxiety gets too much over you. Wouldn't you like to be liberated from those things? Well, the Bible begins with grace, and in grace it reorientates our focus. This has already come up or will come up in Romans. It's come up elsewhere. The Bible often shows how the gospel affects our mind. Romans 12, 1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's the real reality. You will meditate on something. If you're someone like me whose brain never shuts down, you will meditate on something constantly. In fact, I've come to the point where when I think of something, either I or someone I'm with, I'll tell them, will you write this down? Because I've got to walk from here to there and back. And between here, there, and back, I will have 800 thoughts go through my mind. I will solve 400 different problems. And as a result, when I come back to do that thing I was originally going to do, I've already forgotten to do that thing I was supposed to do. And if we allow it, it will be too much for us. The gospel reorientates our focus to something that is far greater. You can focus on what the way things ought to be, the way you think things should be, or how difficult your childhood was, or those mistakes that you made, or how your feelings have been hurt, or how you're a victim, or you're of this group or that group, or how, how, how you wish this, you wish that. You can spend all your life playing that game. Or you can say, Christ is enough. You keep your eyes on Jesus, focused on him. And thus we can live a life of peace. Notice there in verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. There's that language again. But to set the mind on the spirit is life, peace. When our kids were little, they were tiny, that's back when they were cute and cheaper, uh, never thought that would be true when it came to diapers, but it's true. And, and they, then the thunderstorm would come, right? The, 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 the thunder would, would shake the house and the lightning would, would, would brighten the room and they would become really scared. And, and the minute we heard a, a thunder, we would just get up and go in because they're, they're going to start. I would, I would take them and, and I would hold them now that I'm wide awake. And I, we would go up to this window and say, what do we say? I'm not afraid of you, Storm. And then we go over to the next window in the house. What do we say? I'm not afraid of you, Storm. We'd, we'd go over to the next house. What do we say? To, I'm not afraid of you, Storm. Now, it never worked. 
But the, because they, they just wanted to sleep with us, right? It didn't matter what it is that we did. We, we could calm the storm. They're still going to sleep with us. However, they needed to have the habit, create the habit that if they view the storm through their childlike mind that can't understand what's happening, they will choose fear every time. They would choose panic every time. But if they could learn to view the storm through the eyes of their parents who know they are safe, well, there wouldn't be anything to be afraid of, would there? So too, dear believer, if you've received grace, would you reorientate your focus towards that of Christ, your Savior? He has the world under control. He has resolved your sin and shame. Would you act like it? Would you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Here's the second main thing we need to see here. The freedom of gospel life. And then secondly, the freedom of gospel living. The Savior that gives us life is the Savior who calls us to live. I thought of a country song recently. You judge me if you want to. Uh, it's a Timmy McGraw. That's the peak of country music. Just don't tell my father-in-law. But in 2004, he had a big song. I think it's still one of his biggest songs that he's, he's come out with. No, it's not any outlaw. Forgive me. We're not reading that. But the, the song is Live Like You Were Dying. Now, the premise of the song is that a man receives news he's about to die. And you, you know the chorus, right? I went skydiving, which I wouldn't recommend if you're dying. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Uh, and I loved deeper, spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you are dying. Well, we know the song is now stuck in your head. You're welcome. But one can understand the sentiment, can't they? Age changes our priorities. The things I thought that were important when, when I was, you know, 9, 10, 11, you know, that, you know, getting a a Bo Jackson rookie card signed. That was a priority for me when I was a kid. I don't know about you. Uh, but your priorities do change. They really do change. This is why you, you've heard it said that no man on his dying bed ever wished he'd spent more time uh, at work. I would add to that. No person on their, uh, their, their deathbed ever wishes they'd spent more time on social media or, or being obsessed with the news. Right? Your, your priorities change whenever you're confronted with death. But the New Testament takes that idea, particularly Paul here, and he directs our attention not to our death, but to Christ's death. You see, the issue isn't what are you going to do until you die? The issue is what are you going to do now that you already have died? We had a baptism here this morning. We talked about what it symbolizes. It symbolizes that as Christ has died and been buried and raised again, so too we have died to who we were. We've died to guilt. We've died to shame. We've died to the fears. We've died to the sin. All of that to be washed and buried so that when we come up, this is a new person. You've never met this person before. You know, we, we, got a, we got a new identity, a new story to tell. Why? Not because we will die, but because good news, we just died. And all that's left now is to live. Paul directs our attention to this. And having been raised, we live differently. Notice what this looks like. Two things. First of all, gospel living requires righteousness. Look at it there in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirits. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's the thing. Your actions have consequences. 
I, I know we've convinced ourselves uh, of a different story, right? With medical advances and technology, we've convinced ourselves that we can do X without the consequence of Y. I mean, the pill has done this in terms of our uh, sexual ethics, hasn't it? Uh, we, we, we have things that I can do the things that used to get me in trouble. Well, I don't have to worry about that now. Think about it. You could go online right now. You could post as vile of a comment as you want under an anonymous username and no one will know it was you. We've convinced ourselves I can do X without the consequence of Y. And to our great shock, we discover that actually that's not the way life works. Can I give you a few examples? Your anger that you refuse to address will only continue to push people away. It'll never build peace. Your lust that you refuse to slay, it will never stir genuine, long-lasting love, no matter how often you try with this relationship and that. Your bitterness that you've never let go, it will never cure your weary soul. You gotta let go of it. Your greed to where you must go and fight and win and be the best and have the most, it will never give you the longing of contentment that you've had for so long. Our actions have consequences. No wonder then, Paul often equates sin with death. The wages of sin, he told us in chapter 3, is death. So you see it there that he argues that if we want to live, truly live in freedom, that we must grow in righteousness. Think about it. If you have been declared not guilty by a judge, going back to do the things that got you in trouble to begin with is foolishness. Why don't we choose a better way, a way of living freely? In verse 9, he argues that those who walk by the Spirit live by the Spirit. Our lives are shaped by the ongoing work of Christ in our lives. In verse 10, notice the return of the theme of death. To surrender to sin is to choose death, but to surrender to the Spirit is to choose life. If you want to live freely, choose righteousness. But notice here, lastly, verses 11 to 13, gospel living requires death. We will never walk by the Spirit or live in Christ until we learn to die to ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian during World War II, he was executed under Hitler. He said, when Christ calls a man, he begs him to come and die. This isn't new. Jesus in Matthew 16 foretold of his own death. For that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He then said, the way I go is the way you must go. If anyone will come after me, he adds, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice what he said here, you can't live until you die. Two of us are trying to live before we die. You got to die to that. You got to put that off. You got you to quit that. Many of us do not fully live because we have not completely died. We straddle the fence, as it were. We want Jesus and something else. And, and as what we find is when we hold fast to what we think will give us joy, what we think will give us contentment, what we think will give us peace, what we think will give us freedom, we'll never live up to the promises. We've got to crucify those things. Instead, we must pick up our cross, die to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and live for Christ. There we will discover peace. There we will discover a joy that surpasses understanding. 
a love that isn't bound by our circumstances, and a freedom that is not controlled by others. Well, I would encourage you that if your sin is too much, would you come this morning to Christ? Maybe you've never embraced Jesus. Today is a good day to come to Christ. Maybe, maybe you have come to Christ and yet you just never have fully surrendered. Would you come to Christ? Make the glory of Christ the goal of your life. And in that goal and in that life, you will find freedom. I'm not one for musicals. My daughter went to one last night, one of the Disney princesses. I'm not really into musicals because I'm a guy, but, but there is one I do really like, and I would, uh, I would sit down and watch it right now. And that is, of course, Les Miserables. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it makes me sound French when I say it. But Les Miserables, I think, is an excellent musical. You should read the story. The story is about 10,000 pages. I'm not off by much. But the story begins, we're introduced to Jean Valjean. Right, You've got to say it very French, right? Like Jean Valjean, like he's the, one of the French peas of VeggieTales. But Jean Valjean is a, 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 he's a vagabond following his release from prison. So it opens up, it's his last day in prison, he's set free. But the problem with this freedom is that he's not actually free. He's given a piece of paper, and that piece of paper says, this is a convicted criminal, he's a danger to society. So when he goes to get a job, he has to turn that paper in. They say, we can't hire you. You're a danger to society. When he goes to find a place to live, he has to give that piece of paper. It says, we can't give you a place to live because you are a danger to society. And as a result, he's a vagabond. He's homeless. And, 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 and eventually, he, he finds himself in, uh, in with a priest. priest finds him outside, uh, sleeping out in the rain. And the priest brings him in and gives him a home-cooked meal. And if you've seen the latest movie, you've seen how Wolverine acts this out. And, and, and uh, he's eating his meal. He's just scarfing it down, scarfing it down. You remember that when everyone else goes to sleep, remember what Jean Valjean does. He takes all the silverware that was valuable and he steals it. And he's caught in the middle of the night by the police. The police drag him back in, wakes up the priest, and they say, See, sir, he is a thief and a criminal. We've brought back your, your silverware. And Jean Valjean knows the story of the law. He knows what's about to happen. He's going to go right back into prison. He's going to go right back into the years of suffering he just got out of. You remember what the priest does? Oh, oh, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. In fact, you ran off so quickly, I didn't get to give you everything. He goes and grabs the fancy candle things. I don't know what they're called. I'm a guy. And he brings them to Jean Valjean. And as a result, the police, the law, is forced to let him go. Because the law can only threaten. It can only condemn. But if no law's been broken, then he's free. But a law has been broken. But grace triumphed over the law. You remember what Jean Valjean does? He has this existential crisis because the only thing he's ever known is condemnation. He's a lawbreaker. <laughs> so law hunts him down. That's actually a, a big theme of the movie moving forward with another character. You remember what he does in the song? I think it's called Jean Valjean's Soliloquy or something like that. Remember, he takes that piece of paper and he, he meditates upon grace and he walks outside and Wolverine takes it and he, he just rips it up and he throws it into the wind. He says, I am no longer what this paper says I am. And he goes off, becomes a mayor of a town and he builds a factory and he hires people. 
He takes on a new identity because of grace. No longer defined by his past or what he's done, but by what Christ says he is. Believer, that is your story. Will you choose to be free, truly free, if you will walk by the Spirit and keep your eyes focused on Jesus? Good news. You are free. You are free indeed. So again, I don't know your story, but I'm going to ask that you come. If you've never embraced Christ, would you come? If you've just been straddling the fence, will you come? If you're stuck in the rock as a believer, would you come? Keep your eyes on Jesus, centered on his gospel. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I ask you to be so kind.